I'd like to begin by mentioning that when I mentioned names of people who would be serving, I inadvertently left out Glenn Roth's name. You were here on my paper, Glenn. I just want you to know that uh, Glenn is continuing his ministry among us on the pastoral care team and is a very valuable member of that team. In fact, he's on call this week while Linda and Nancy and I are gone. So thank you, Glenn, for um, your continuing ministry here among us. We, we appreciate it very much. And now on to the story that we just heard read by Betty from John. I remember first hearing this story uh, when I was a child in Sunday school. And the emphasis, of course, was on the miracle that Jesus was able to turn the water into wine, and good wine at that. And maybe that's why I never heard a sermon preached on this text. <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of you have, but I, I never heard a sermon preached on this text. It happens that the story raises a number of interesting issues that aren't always easy for us to talk about. First, there's the issue of alcohol. Note that this story centers around a miracle that does not involve healing a sick person or casting out a demon or feeding hungry people or raising someone from the dead. It involves creating an alcoholic beverage and lots of it. Six jars of it, each jar containing 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, that is a lot of wine. So depending on how we feel about the consumption of alcohol, this aspect of the story may be troubling for us or not. Then there's the issue of family dynamics. We catch a glimpse of some interesting ones as we see Jesus and his mother interacting together. Jesus' mother, whose name is never mentioned, not even once in the Gospel of John, is at a wedding with her son. She sees a need, and she makes it her son's business to do something about it. From a family systems perspective, all I can say is that we are looking at some serious boundary issues here. <laughs> With these issues in mind, let's take another look at the story. The setting of the story is a wedding, not an all-day affair like it often is for us in our culture. It's a seven-day affair. In other words, it is a big, prolonged party with people coming and going, hosted at the home of the bridegroom. Given the duration of the event and the large number of guests who are attending, it's necessary to appoint a steward or a president, really, of the banquet to see to all the logistic details. And food and drink were definitely an important part of these logistical details. Wine was served, and it flowed freely. It's important to note that regardless of how we might feel about the use of alcohol, the problem in the story is not the presence of alcohol. The problem is its absence. 
Either the host was not well prepared or the guests were extra thirsty because the wine runs out. And this is a crisis not just of logistics. It's a crisis of honor. It's a crisis of honor that brings shame on the host. Now, Jesus' mother, who is there along with her son Jesus and along with his disciples, sees this crisis unfolding. And she steps up to do something about it. And you've got to love what she does. Instead of approaching Jesus and saying, we've got a problem here. Do you think you could help? She sidles up next to Jesus and says, they have no wine. She's assuming two things. Number one, that Jesus will understand through that single sentence the gravity of the situation and that she expects him to do something about it. And two, that he is able to do something about it. Now, in Mary's defense, she's merely doing what her culture tells her she can do. For a woman, for a woman to use a more direct approach with an adult man in public was culturally taboo. It was highly offensive. So what she's doing here is following the rules. She is exerting her will in a socially acceptable way. Yet Jesus gives her what I consider to be a rather rude response. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Or loosely paraphrased, and this is my problem to fix. You know, I wonder what, what accounts for Jesus' prickly response here. Is he reacting to his mother's attempt to manage him? Or does he think that this need simply isn't worthy of his response? After all, he came to bring abundant life, not abundant wine. Or is it a question of timing? He explains his reluctance to get involved with this statement. My hour has not yet come. Talk about a cryptic response. But that does seem to be the key to understanding where Jesus is coming from here. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus refers not infrequently to his hour which seems to refer to his death. And in this morning's story, we see Jesus paying attention from the very beginning of his ministry to this calling, to what God is wanting to do in and through him, and to God's sense of timing through it all. He will say repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John that he takes his direction only from God, and God sets the hour. In other words, he must be guided by his inner sense of calling from God, not by any human claim or authority, not even his mother's. But as we can see, Jesus' mother doesn't give up easily. Her response to Jesus' rebuff is to sidle over to the servants and say, just do whatever he tells you to do. 
And guess what? Either Jesus has a change of heart or he knows better than to argue with his mother. And he ends up doing what she has requested. Without any fanfare, without any calling of attention to what he's doing, Jesus simply asks the servants to fill six empty stone jars with water and take some of it to the steward of the banquet for his approval. And I can only guess what the servants must have been thinking and feeling at that moment. Taking water to the steward? But they comply. The steward tastes what has been brought to him, and he is shocked and amazed. Not because it tastes like water, but because it is such good wine. But why in the world is it only being brought out now? I mean, normally the good wine is served first while the guests are, shall we say, fully present and fully tasting what they are drinking. Save the inferior stuff till later when intoxicated guests no longer care what they are drinking. It is an interesting story, isn't it? What I find, I think, most interesting is that this is a story in the Gospel of John that launches Jesus' ministry. So presumably, it's a significant story meant to point us toward who Jesus is and what he's about. And each of the Gospels, each of the Gospels has its own launching story. In Matthew, Jesus launches his ministry with his Sermon on the Mount. And in Mark, Jesus casts out a demon. And in Luke, Jesus preaches a provocative sermon that very nearly gets him killed. And in John... Jesus begins it all by inviting his disciples to come and see, then promptly takes them to a wedding fraught with complicated family dynamics where they witness a miracle centered around the creation of an alcoholic beverage. What are we to make of this? John is really pretty straightforward about the purpose of this story. He himself interprets the event by saying, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, and revealed his glory. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, you will see that this is indeed the first of many signs, which in John are miraculous sorts of events that point to the presence and activity of God in and through Jesus. So the question, really, I think, for us this morning is, what is it about God at work in Jesus that we are meant to see in this story? Well, Many commentators point to the rich symbolism in this story and invite us to see deeper meanings that lie beneath the concrete details of the story. Many scholars... Note the significance of the careful description of the jars that are being filled. Their number, their size, their purpose. Some say the fact that this new wine is created in old vessels of Jewish purification rites shows that Jesus is coming to create something new. 
or that Jesus is coming to revitalize the Jewish religious system of which he is a part. <clears throat> Other commentators emphasize the size of the jars and the abundance of the wine created. This abundance, they say, points to the extravagant generosity of God that invites us to celebrate God's goodness and invites us to celebrate life itself. Still, other commentators point out that in the Old Testament, the abundance of good wine is a symbol of the joyous arrival of God's kingdom. And that is really what this story is about, the celebration of Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God. I think that it's very possible to see all of these things in this story. This is a story about extravagance and transformation and about celebrating the new reality that is breaking in among us. It's a story about God's glory, about God's light being revealed. But this morning, maybe because of the space that I'm in, I'm seeing something more. I am marveling that in the story, God's glory is revealed, not in some idyllic setting, but in the midst of common human experience and in the midst of the messiness of life. In this story, we see Jesus' ministry taking shape in the midst of ordinary human celebrations like weddings and in the midst of ordinary human dilemmas like what do you do when the wine runs out, bringing shame to the host? We also see Jesus navigating family dynamics. It turns out that Jesus wasn't born into a vacuum. He was born into a family with all its complications. And we see in this morning's story that relationships were sometimes messy. In the midst of it all, Jesus had to find his own sense of self-definition in a culture where the notion of self-definition didn't exist, primarily in relationship with his heavenly father. And sometimes that relationship with his heavenly father took him to places that were at odds with his earthly family. We see this tension emerging in his life already when he was a child. When at age 12, Jesus stays behind at the temple in Jerusalem, and his parents are worried sick when they can't find him. And when confronted about this, he responds, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I need to be in my father's house? It appears that as time went on, things didn't really get much easier. In the Gospel of Mark, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus' family, namely his mother and his brothers, seeking out Jesus to restrain him and take him home because people were saying he's gone out of his mind. Check out Mark 3, verse 21. The point here is that Jesus was not shielded from the complexities and pain of life and human relationships. He interacted with it. He was affected by it. 
he had to decide how to respond to it. And the epiphany for me this morning in this season of epiphany is that it is precisely in the messy complexity of this story that we see God's glory revealed. The story itself brings fuller understanding to words that we already heard in the first chapter of John. In verse 14, the word became flesh and lived among us. And it was messy. And there in that messiness, we have seen his glory. I don't know about you, but for me, that is a welcome word of hope. And I've been particularly drawn to think about how this word connects to us and our life together here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. Church life is messy no matter what congregation, no matter what congregation you are a part of. I think that's because we each have stuff that we carry with us often from our families of origin. And we each bring that stuff into our life together as a faith community. And sometimes our stuff bumps up against somebody else's stuff. And that's when things get really interesting. That's often when and where we experience conflict. Given this reality, it has occurred to me on more than one occasion, and not, I'm not talking primarily about here, it has occurred to me on more than one occasion that it's really only by the grace of God that the church works at all. An extra layer that we're dealing with here at East Chestnut Street is pastoral transition. And that can be a very messy time in the life of a congregation. Now my sense is that things are going very well for us here. But I imagine that there is at least some level of anxiety about what the future holds. Who will be our next pastor? Will he or she be a good fit for us? Do we want this person to help us carry on as we are or to challenge us in our ways of being and thinking? As we reflect on these kinds of questions, I also hear us wondering together about the calling of our congregation. What is our unique calling? What are we called to offer this world that God so loves? We know that we value, we highly value outreach to our community. But what does that look like? Hosting Monday night meals or working to prevent homelessness? actively pursuing peace and confronting injustice in our community and world, all of the above? And how much and what kind of staff time will it take to help us effectively pursue these priorities? These are the bigger questions that we're asking, at least questions that I hear us asking. And I'm also hearing that we are not all at the same place on these issues. And that's normal. That's to be expected. 
I think the question for us emerging in this morning's story is, can we trust that God's glory, that God's light is being revealed even in the messiness of our life together? I can. Because from where I stand, I get to see it pretty often, both the messiness and the glory. Monday night meals in particular are messy. Coffee gets spilled. Toilet paper disappears. And once in a great while, the messiness of people's lives erupt into a fight, and I have to call the police. It doesn't happen often, hardly ever. But one night when it did, I ended up standing out on the sidewalk in front of the church, sort of keeping an eye on what was going on out there to make sure that there was not any more trouble. And several of our guests, male guests, came out to keep me company, and I, I think to keep watch over me. They apologized for the behavior of their peers, and they began to tell me why they come to these meals. They come, they told me, not primarily for the food, although the food is good. They come to this place because they feel welcome. You smile when we walk in the door, they said. And the people who work here treat us with dignity and respect, like they're glad to see us here. I could be mistaken, but I think that night in the midst of that mess, I was catching a glimpse of God's glory. Now, this isn't the only setting where I see God's glory being revealed among us. I think I saw it again a couple of weeks ago at our church board retreat and the board meeting that followed. We spent some time reflecting together on the gifts and the limits that we bring to our work as leaders of this congregation and how we might together share those gifts and limits in ways that nurture the health of our congregation and help it be faithful to its calling. It turned out to be a very gutsy, gutsy is the word I like to use, a very gutsy conversation where I saw a great deal of honesty and transparency along with a lot of care. Honesty and care. And that's where I caught a glimpse of the glory in vulnerability shared with each other and in the expression of this group's clear commitment to this congregation and to its well-being. I left those meetings with hope and with gratitude for this journey that we are on together because it has been and continues to be a rich opportunity for all of us to trust, to trust that God's glory, that God's light is being revealed among us. And it's an opportunity for us to watch for it, even in the midst of this sometimes messy transitional space. 
It is an opportunity for us to open ourselves to God's outpouring of fresh spirit and generous provision and new life. In this morning's story, the servants and Jesus' disciples, they're the only ones who really see and know what has happened. They are the only ones to witness Jesus' sign. We are not told how the servants respond, but we are told that the disciples catch a glimpse of God's glory that in Jesus and through the sign of water turned to abundant wine, they experience God's loving, living, generous presence among them. And they believe and are able to follow Jesus. May we too watch for signs of God's loving, living, generous presence among us. May we catch glimpses of God's glory in our common human experience, even in its messiness. May we catch glimpses of God's glory all throughout our life together as a body. And when we do, may we believe and reaffirm our commitment to Jesus and his way. Amen.